Gregory Terry has worked in Ukraine for 26 years, facilitating the delivery of aid to frontline areas of the country. Like me, he uses YouTube as a tool to advocate for Ukraine and to demonstrate the amazing work of his team on the ground. Greg has always been fascinated by the cultures, history and languages of the region, growing up in an era which saw the opening up of the Soviet Union. I'll let him tell the whole story of his family and how he came to be connected to Russia and then Ukraine. Greg now runs an NGO in Ukraine and considers the country his second homeland. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe and definitely comment on the videos. We've also got a link to Greg's charity. He does extraordinary work delivering essential supplies to the front line. And because he's continuously there, he also knows day by day, week by week, what the troops actually need to help them in the fight and to improve their chances of survival. Do please also check out the other Ukrainian charities in the description of the video, but make sure you check out Greg's first. Greg, welcome to the channel. Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you for the opportunity and greetings to all of your your wonderful community here, I appreciate it deeply. Well, we're we're we share, I think, a, a certain commonality. We were talking about Professor Gerdes earlier, and you've got a lot more there in common with him in terms of background. But we we both studied Russian, um, and 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 speak Russian. And I mean, for my part, it's been a relatively uh, sort of passive skill. It hasn't really been useful in my career until now. Now it is incredibly beneficial to be able to uh, see primary materials in Russian, see some of the output of the so-called, you know, the Russian informational opposition. Um, some of that stuff's actually quite good and quite concentrated information, but also to listen to Ukrainian TV, because there's still a lot of it actually comes out in Russian or a lot of it's bilingual, isn't it? Where you'll have... Uh, yeah interviewer in ukrainian and you'll have uh, people talking in russian so it gives me at least access to a lot of material now i'm not there at the pointy end like you are but i imagine your russian skills are very useful in the kind of frontline uh, communities which you find yourselves in yeah it's massively um it's, it's unbelievable to be quite honest and I think really here you have a lot of folks, in, especially older generation, that have spoken Russian their entire life. And they've, they're trying to flip to some Ukrainian. So you get really a hybrid Russian-Ukrainian language. And, and, and of course, the, those in Western Ukraine speak more beautiful um, Ukrainian. You get into the central, you'll get a mix. You'll get some Russian, you'll get some Ukrainian, you'll get the hybrid. And then especially out east, you get a lot more Russian Um over 50% of the soldiers are, or even more, speaking Russian. And yeah, it, it's a massive asset for me, much like you, to be able to look at the news, check this, listen to that. And for me specifically, being able to speak to these guys as a foreigner um, is, it's instant credibility. When I'm working with new groups, new brigades, new battalions, 19... 94. I was 21 years old. My first trip to Moscow. I was invited there. Just crazy, crazily unbelievable invitation that came to come and teach there for a month. I had just gotten out of college. I was green, wet behind the ears, and I went. And I that started my journey of learning the Russian language. Fast forward to 1998. I'm living in California, working, and I receive an invitation to go to this place called Ukraine. And 26 years later, I've, I'm now pushing almost four years 
of my life total, I have been inside Ukraine, every oblast, every city. I have many friends that are deputies in the government. Um, I'm having coffee here a little bit later with the mayor of the city of Malnitsky. We're friends. There's just a lot of connections on all sides, whether it's military, just common civilians that are my friends and family and government. I, I, I can give you one example of how the Russian language has helped me out. A few days ago, I was pushing up, dropping some aid to a very dear friend of mine in the Sumi region. And I can tell this now, but he's actually on the zero line there on the border where the DRG incursions are brutally difficult. And I, when I go to these guys, I'm I'm with them. I am bed right with them. In fact, my one buddy, he gives me his bed. I'm in his bed. He goes sleep on the floor. He goes, you're sleeping in my bed. I said, okay, well, thank you. And um, but as we were coming in and we came to a blog post, my partner and I, who's Ukrainian, and he's the president of our NGO here. And the name of that is Napram, which in Ukrainian means direction, direction. Um, we came to the border or to the, to the checkpoint. And they were checking us. And of course, everything on the checkpoints is in pure Ukrainian. And they use a lot of keywords that are very difficult for Russian speakers to pronounce perfectly in Ukrainian because there are a lot of collaborators. There are a lot of spies. And we come up, they begin talking. And um, the guy looks over at me and goes, document. And he had no idea that I was a foreigner yet. So I reach him, I grab my, my passport. And of course I don't pull my other documents only if you need them, I pull my passport. He looks and goes, Oh, American. I said, yes, I'm speaking English. And then he asked Jania, my partner, he goes, okay, we're thankful the Americans here, but how do you communicate with him? Because he's speaking English. And Jania said, one second. He turned to me and started in pure Russian. Greg, why is this guy asking me, how do I communicate with you? What does he think? You don't know a couple of languages? And I respond back with cultural Russian. Okay. And the guy goes, oh my goodness. And listen, now <laughs> it's just, this happens day by day. And when that unfolds, the bond of relationship is instant, and it's very important. So it, it it is a great asset. It is, it is. And I'm as I say, I'm not at the pointy end. And uh, even when I came to Ukraine for the first time, it's Lviv. So it's, you know, I would say it's an extremely low risk kind of environment. There is a slightly different attitude to to Russian there, uh, in that if there's no other way to communicate people will will tolerate you speaking russian but they may mm -hmm. choose not to speak it themselves um but as we were talking before we hit record i think that 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 willingness and actually the appreciation uh, or that's in the negative appreciation almost in lviv you know it's you know you're ordering a coffee you're ordering a meal it's not a life and death situation although if people were really curious to understand why i was there and what i was doing they they would break that and they'd be very clear they'd say okay like i've i vowed not to speak russian again in my life but i really want to know something about you i don't speak english right and off you go and then and then you you know they're, they're fluent in russian uh but it's 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 a temporary thing and it's because you've got self-interest if you're there at the front 
then communication can be a life and death matter. Uh, so you you find that resistance kind of goes down and actually it turns from resistance into a, I think you described it earlier as a sort of form of gratitude that actually you're able to communicate. It's a very important thing to be able to, to do. Beautifully stated. I, I, I can even tell you being there, um, I've been under shelling many times, been in pressureful situations on our vehicle. We're fully equipped, of course, you know, night vision, drone detectors. Our vehicle looks fully military. I have military documents um, for if I need them for checkpoints for access. Um, but it's interesting that many times when the pressure increases, because these guys, honestly, have been speaking Russian their entire life. And now they're flipping to Ukrainian and the mixture comes, that hybrid I was speaking of. But when the pressure comes, they revert like the warning or, oh, my goodness, or get down or get to the corridor. It's in pure Russian because it's the natural first instinct that jumps back out. And, it, you know, you're right. People want to know that others care. And especially for foreigners like yourself or myself, if we're here and there is an ability or an availability to communicate without a translator, uh, they're going, they're going, and 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 they're very appreciative. Well, let's touch uh, before we move on for a minute. We're not going to talk too much about uh, Russia itself, but we've got a common experience. I was there in in ninety two. You were there in nineteen ninety four. So the same kind of period, uh, just emerging uh, the market economy and so on. You got people on street corners selling stuff all the time. It's you got a real sense of that kind of transition and. We used to, because I, I I did a a language course uh, the first time I was there in MGU, which is the the huge, uh, you know, Stalin building in the centre of town. It's got a red red star. It's actually on the edge of town, so you can you can see it from a distance. And it's got a huge sort of Soviet red star on the top, the size of a double decker bus. Uh, you know, it's an extraordinary thing. We used to get drunk and break out onto the roof and just watch <laughs> over the city skyline, and. Like you, you know, uh, deeply interested in in, in the literature uh, and history. Uh, and even they're not not particularly Jewy eyed. I always found it, you know, it's an intensely traumatic history. It's not something to sentimentalize about. And a lot of people do sentimentalize about, you know, Russian literature and so on, and and sort of big it up in, in this romantic sense. Uh, no, I always found it deeply traumatic, as if you're reading, you know, the. Uh, especially Dostoevsky reading the ramblings of a, of a schizophrenic, essentially. I mean, it's, it's a diseased mind. It's interesting, but you can't get away from that sense of disease and trauma in, in a lot of uh, Russian literature. But we're looking out there over the city, and it's pretty peaceful there. It's the year in between Gorbachev being deposed and shelling the White House. So relatively peaceful, you know, I mean, it's, uh, but you get this sense of transition and stability. But you also get an incredible sense of sort of freedom, and you look out over that skyline and you also think you can't escape the thought that the Cold War has just ended and we essentially won. And I asked myself the question at that point, you know, did these guys know they've lost? And that was a question that rattled around my head. Do they, do they know they've lost and they're kind of moving on? I think now we're, we're 30 years on from that moment and it's quite clear that they have no realisation that they lost the Cold War, um, 
or they have a partial realization. And what we're seeing now is, you know, we're taking it back. You know, you might think we lost it, but we never really considered that that was the case. We were humiliated, even though people at the time didn't feel that. That's a, 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 that's a sense that's been implanted into them, I think. They've been told they were humiliated. And they say, yes, we were eliminated. Yeah, that, that, that's not really the case. Um, it's an extraordinary, almost like a book ending. And now you've got this incredible malignancy coming out. Now, you've been much closer to the front line there, and you're there continuously. I haven't been anywhere near, uh, you know, that. that. But nonetheless, I get the sense of, of, of Moscow radiating the desire to control, radiating malignancy, not just physically through the shells, but also through information warfare, through uh, manipulating our political processes to try and divide and conquer us. Um, where you are at the eye of the storm, is it much more that sort of physical malignancy? Or do you also get that sense of the hybrid kind of warfare, the information warfare, the cultural warfare? I would answer your question in a couple of ways. First of all, it's a very multi-front um, situation. You have a physical war with bullets and bombs. You have an informational war. You have a war of culture. You have a war of corruption. You have a war of infiltration of ideologies throughout the world. And, you know, if if I go back just to the early um, part of your statement and your your observations there. First, I would say I completely agree with you. And when you look at Russia, you have to understand that it is a nation that is built in different, like a caste system. And the the elite, those in the know, and we can for this we could call it Putin's regime. Um, they are absolutely aware of what they are doing. Now, many common Russian people, they do not know. All they know is what they are force-fed. Being here, I can check the media. I Not just the stuff, you know, where people, oh, I saw this on Telegram. I saw this on Twitter. Okay, I understand. But guys, do you understand half the stuff you're looking at on Telegram and Twitter is put out by Russia? And it's it's all a guy's you know, there there is a reason Tucker Carlson is in Moscow. There, there is a reason that these things are unfolding. And we have to be very careful how we throw around, well, who's doing this or who's doing that? The bottom line is Russia has been preparing for this moment for decades. And it may not be every common person, every business where they wanted many to break free and become westernized and, and have normal life, whatever that is today. Um, they've been preparing for this for decades and decades. I can tell you, um, Jonathan, I was invited to Washington, D.C. Um, in the fall of last year. And the reason I was invited there is because it was at the Ukrainian embassy and also at the Capitol building. And, you know, my following very small at that point and now growing thanks to collaborations with, with you and others. And I'm very appreciative of that. But I was invited because I have such good friends here in Ukraine, and one of them a deputy, and they were trying to bring a spectrum of people, like a listening forum there at the Capitol. There were U.S. senators. There were U.S. House of Representatives. There were high-ranking military officials. There was the ambassador of Ukraine. 
and this this there were journalists from nations where we look at and we see problems for example hungary and the issues we we deal with with or, uh, orban um but then they were there so this whole forum came together and i remember it very clearly that house representative victoria sparts we're sitting there she's sitting beside me they say, okay, can you tell us your experiences? You're an American citizen. You're literally there on the front line. Your, your track record is proven. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? What are your observations? And it was trying to understand altogether how to battle against this and to, to bring other ideas and other perspectives. Victoria Sparks looked at our group and said, guys, I am a native-born Ukrainian citizen. I can never be the president of the United States but I'm a house representative of Indianapolis, Indiana. And I'm, I've lived in the United States for 20 some years. I'm here to tell you right now, and I know some of you are not going to believe this, but at least one third of the bills that are on the floor of the house that come across my desk, I have no doubt. And I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not a, a MAGA. I'm not a, I'm not a far lefter. I'm just trying to fight for truth for our world. And she is a Republican, but she goes, at least one third of the documents that are coming across my desk on the floor, no question are authored by Russian propaganda. No question. And our, our country can't see it right now. So to get into that level of complexity, this has been the long game going on. And unfortunately, the world is slow to understand that. And it's a sharp contrast, isn't it? Because in the Cold War, Russia was no less malignant. Well, it was it was different. I mean, they they had perhaps more of a sense that there was a, a set of rules and norms and, you know, certain red lines you don't go beyond. And it seems that today's Russia has no red lines and the, the ceiling has lifted off its ambition as well. Whereas before it might have been, you know, fighting for certain assets or territories or proxies. I'm not sure Russia ever believed it could, uh, you know, turn its main adversaries into a semi-zombie state that it could partially control. Um, and, you know, I say that as, as, as this is going to annoy a few people here as well, but Brexit very much in Russia's interests as well. You know, uh, obviously there are real, genuine, organic politics behind that as well. And there's a lot of people saying, yeah, but my vote was genuine and then blah, 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 blah. The fact remains is it's a hugely beneficial step for Russia. They probably thought Brexit was going to be even more divisive than it, than it so far has turned out to be. It's been bad enough. Um, but it's set a lot of people in disagreement. And it's that very process of people disagreeing with each other, um, failing to find common cause. In fact, failing to see any commonality in their values at all. That that is the mark of active measures, isn't it? It's it's this corrosive effect on political and social and cultural relations. I will for sure let you speak about your country and homeland with the Brexit. I will not touch that with a ten foot pole, but I agree with you completely. For my country, I can speak um, and represent that to your audience, and that is this: our country right now is in the most chaotic state that has ever been in its history. And that, we can just stop it right there. That is what has been 
being and will continue to be sown is discord. And that plays perfectly into the plans that Russia has for, we can use the words directly quoted from Vladimir Putin when he was months ago meeting with Xi Jinping and then making comments about that because I, like you, I watch all the Russian media and I listen to it. And then we translate a lot of it when I'm home. Now, when I'm here in, the United, here in Ukraine, it's all about the aid. Let people see where their gifts are going, where their help is going. Tell the real story of inside Ukraine that you'll never see for the most part anywhere else because there are no journalists on the front line. There is no representation of the United Nations on the front line. And the only ones that I've seen were rude and disrespectful to Ukrainian soldiers. And for sure, the Red Cross is not within 100 kilometers of the front line. They're eating crumpets and curds and whey. So we're there telling the story and, you know, we're scratching an itch for people and, and they're wanting to help. But this chaos, this divisiveness, this is the play. This is the goal. And the world is falling for it so easily. You know, every day, every day, people die in Ukraine. This, this front line is 1,000 kilometers long. For those of you that are watching from the United States, that is 600 miles. It is 1,000 kilometers long. And every day, Ukrainian soldiers in more equally important ukrainian civilians are being killed and brutalized and the world unfortunately has lost a little sight of that especially with the chaos that is sown the emerging war that seems to be elevating in the middle east and the other chaos that's happening around the world i will give you one example a few days ago, I'm up on the front lines in the Sumi region. And as I shared earlier, the DRG working there. And basically, for those of you that do not know, that is basically special forces, special ops of Russia that is inside Ukraine. They're living in the forest there. It's very icy. It's very cold. It's very snowy. And basically, all they're doing is sabotage, killing civilians and killing Ukrainian soldiers. And the Ukrainian soldiers are having to put so much effort into managing that border area where over the last 10 days, Russia has moved in an entire artillery division. And this is public information. I can tell you um, they are fully expecting that Sumy and Chernigov regions and that border is going to heat up like early phases of the war. They, they, they can see it. Um, but just a few days ago, I'm there with the guys, and my buddy comes to me and goes, Greg, I may have to go, and if I do, I'm leaving you here. You have the toys with you, lots of toys. He says, and if I do, you and Jania, you get in that corner, you get the toys, and you stay awake because the DRG is everywhere right now, and we have to go out and do our job. I said, okay, no problem, no problem. And um, they went out and they came back and he, he said, y'all all right? I said, yeah, man, no problem. The toys were ready. And he, he goes, man, I'm going to show you something. You can't show it to anybody else, but I'm going to show you. I can talk about it. 
two kilometers from where I was sitting, 1.2 miles, just on the other road over, basically through a big field and forest. There was a grandmother and a grandfather driving along the road, just heading back to their little village home, kilometers inside the Ukrainian border. And the DRG was there hiding in the trees and killed them. They were obviously old people, older. They were obviously civilians. They were, I mean, pure. It's so clear. And he goes, do you want to see the drone footage? I said, yeah, show it to me. And you, I literally watched. Even from the drone, I could see this was a granny and grandpa. And these DRG guys just stood up right beside the road, wiped them out. And this, the, these are the reason, this, this, is, this is the reason that we have to do what we're doing. Explain to people as clearly as possible that this is not as simple as you think. And this is a world situation that gets me back to the Putin and Xi moment that I wanted to say. Putin and Xi, in their meeting, Putin came out immediately after he says, we know that the West wants to control everything. But we're here to tell you there is a new world order. And I'm not conspiracy theorying that. I'm just saying that was his statement. There's a new world order that is needed because we're not dealing with that anymore. And that's where we're at. And it's challenging. It's projection. It's always projection, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. you're controlling everything. And that is essentially because that is his desire you know that is that is the game plan on his side and of course he's going to project that therefore he cannot see a genuine organic alliance of countries coming together to fight together and pull their sovereignty uh in that sense we know this from his speeches as well he sees europe simply as a sort of puppet a marionette of Western, uh, in a, american foreign policy um there is no strategic military advantages there to 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 basically massacring uh, an elderly uh, couple uh, in there you know and, and and even you know that's going to terrorize people but it's not going to change their minds they're not going to suddenly love the russian world and embrace it quite the opposite um ukrainians the first thing when i sort of got into these conversations um a very nice Ukrainian Canadian lady who explained to me says the thing you need to know about Ukrainians is one we're stubborn you know, you 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 push us, and uh, and and we're going to really dig our heels in, and then that, that. So this strategy doesn't work. But what it also, to me, underlines. I'm interested to hear you think this is ever because as we get into uh, deeper into the electoral cycle, we've already heard a lot. We're going to hear a lot more conversation about negotiated settlement, uh, about freezing the lines of contact, negotiation, etc. I call this the normalization. Of what essentially is a genocidal, uh, highly traumatized, genocidal, pathological country, which is Russia. Um, it is not normal in any sense. Therefore, the idea of a negotiated settlement is ridiculous. But this is gonna this is gonna be talked about more and more, isn't it, as we approach the election day? Jonathan, how do you have such the keen ability to read my mind? That is exactly <laughs> where I was hoping you'd take the conversation. All right. Now. It's the number one propaganda director. Let's give an yeah. inside look. It's out there now that all of these security agreements, like Ukraine has developed with your nation, 
that we will guarantee security for X amount of time. All of these different things are like pieces of a puzzle that Kiev, Zelensky, and others are putting together to push towards a frozen conflict and, and, and settle the war down. Okay, that is the Kremlin talking, guys, 100%. Everywhere on the front line I go, and I leave again tomorrow, I'm with soldiers, and I ask them, I said, guys, you hear what they're talking about? Maybe, you know, get a little security and maybe pause the war. And 100% of the responses are this, not 99, not 50, 100%. They, my call sign there is Gritsko, okay? It's Ukrainian for Grisha, Grigori, Greg. And they'll say, Greg, this will never happen. This is our homeland. We were invaded and we will defend our dirt because if we don't, it will never stop. This is the time. And secondly, this is what they say. All of them. I have lost 73 friends. I have lost 24 friends, heroes who died fighting for this cause. I would never not honor their sacrifice and win this war. So it's a complex issue that has many um, levels of thought. It's not just, oh, we're going to do this and pause this and freeze this. No, these soldiers, they're not quitting. And Zelensky knows it. Ukraine knows it. But you get a lot of that. It, it's the game they play. Peshka, 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 peshka. That's what they do. Pawns, 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 pawns. They play chess. I, I've suspected now for a good number of months that, uh, and this, you know, there are people who are going to disagree, and this is an assumption, and I need to label my assumptions as such. But it's my assumption that... Uh, uh, the, the Biden is being heavily influenced by Joe Sullivan, uh, Jake Sullivan. Uh, Jake Sullivan, in turn, has been influenced by a number of uh, so-called experts. They all come from the Russian expertise area, not from yeah, Ukraine expertise. Um, and they are heavily, heavily influenced by these uh, Russian uh, objectives. Um, and the idea of a frozen conflict, it, it's... You know, we we think in terms of North Korea, like okay, it's going to be stable off for a point. That's not how Russia operates. They operate more of a salami slice, which is a pause is is only really an opportunity to gather your forces, reduce pressure on your windpipe, as it were. Because I my interpretation here is Moscow is in real trouble at the moment from mm -hmm. Ukraine's long range drone strategy against its oil facilities. Uh, so we're going to see fire proxies but also directly this sort of negotiation language escalate and as ukraine you know in no way is this a stalemate maybe it may be that the, the the lines of contact are not moving significantly but there's an awful lot of other stuff happening which is not to moscow's favor uh, and of course if they are that perception sort of losing in any sense, they're going to put far far more resources into this negotiation uh, strategy well, I will tell you this, and due to the long game and the thoughts that we may be hearing, oh, calm it down, stalemate, you are correct 100% that there will be nothing more than a a, a, a reload um, for the Russian side. But 
I'm not sure from my experience and being there on every hot, every hot spot that and I'm sure, I'm sure intelligence knows it, you know, Great Britain, US, EU, of course, Russia knows it, Ukraine knows it, but right now is such a key time in this war. Ukraine is struggling to have enough soldiers. It's a fact. And they are struggling for supply. There are some places on the front line battles where it we used to hear the phrase or the ratio 10 to 1, Russia firing 10 shells to every one Ukraine. Well, in some places, and this is not me counting, this is directly from commanders there that I'm having tea with, it's 100 to 1. And a lot of that, I personally believe, coming from the North Korea resupplying, um, which was happening months and months ago, but the world did not pay attention to it. I was home. I was doing videos about it. I was telling everybody. I said, I'm telling you, it's coming. It's coming. And we, we know it's coming. We know it's here. And unless Ukraine fixes its mobilization issue, which internally, I one thing I do on my channel is tell the truth. It's a problem here figuring out the nuances of that. And it's an internal struggle. Secondly, you see all the propaganda pushes at that about we're going to do a, a reboot on the government, a reboot on leadership. No names called. Everybody runs with it that it's illusiony, but there was going to be a reboot. You, you see that chaos. Guys, that is exactly the narrative that the Kremlin puts out, and the world plays right into the hands of it. So unless Ukraine is resupplied in a heavy way, and secondly, solves their deficit in frontline troops and i'm i'm not a troll here i'm just going to tell you the truth it's definitely in the best interest for russia to keep the the pedal down yeah. and right now we're seeing that they'll talk negotiation at the same time it, it's like when uh, civilians were being evacuated and they're firing on the convoys you know you, you, you words are used like you'd use uh you know chaff to defect uh, missiles from a, a helicopter or a plane or something they're just another exactly. weapon of war um you've got an intense so the last area i want to talk to is, is is really link up um the reason why ukraine is still in the fight um and and as you say, it's it's not munitions because they're struggling for that. It's not numerical superiority. They're struggling for that. Um, and link the experience you had around the Orange Revolution, Maidan, to the present, and the fact that that this is this is something a lot more that's keeping them in the fight. It's some kind of uh, cultural and social and political resilience. It's some kind of innovation, evolution. There's there's there's, there's characteristics to Ukraine which are deeply threatening to Russia uh, and to its vertical uh, power structure and to its leadership. Um, but these are also the reasons why Ukraine's still in the fight. So what, what's, how do you, how do you hook up, you know, well, the revolutions with, with their survival now? This has been the long-term play and, and here what the guys are calling it is this is their war for independence. So even though, you know, we had the, beginnings of the collapse of the Soviet Union there in 89 and 90 and 91. And these, these satellite nations were receiving their independence. Um, guys, they received independence only in a flag. 
That's it. The, the, the Soviet Union then transitioning to Russia and then the Commonwealth of Independent States, CIS. I'm just telling you, they still controlled everything. Well, they were doing an election. Yes. Oh, yeah. And they elected a good guy, maybe, or a bad guy. Russia's, the Soviet mentality, so indoctrinated for 100 years that you cannot break free from that in by simply hanging your flag and having an election. So they've been fighting a war for their independence. Yes, it was the Orange Revolution. And re remember, uh, it was um, Yushchenko being poisoned. All these things were happening. We're starting to watch. And you, oh, well, the KGB's doing that. Da, 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 and you hear, see all that unfolding. The next thing you know, you're moving a few years later into the Maidan, which absolutely was Russian snipers in the Hotel Ukraina there at the Maidan Square. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I was there. And I'm telling you, it was Russian snipers. He said, well, how do you know that? I said, because my friends in the government, in the military, in the SBU, in the deputies, it was. And, and the story was the different cover of Ukrainians killing Ukrainians, da, da, da. just like Ukrainians then from that phase forward started creating acts of genocide against the Russian population. In same Lugansk, story, isn't in it? Donetsk. It's the, same, it's the story. same story. Can't you see it? The same story. It pushes us now into this not war now. Guys, the war's been going on for two decades. This phase of the war, this invasion, February 24, 2022, that now has turned into a brutal war, war, one type war on these front lines of trench warfare. And it's filthy, nasty, ugly. And I promise you, during the moments that you and I have been sharing and communicating here, Jonathan, Ukrainian soldiers have died. Bet there's Beth, I was gonna speak Russian. There's no question. There's no question. It's happening every day. So Ukraine, they are Ukrainians, are the most resilient people. There will be no possible way that they will take no for an answer now. Because very clearly, these guys. And ladies and heroes, not only soldiers, volunteers, those grandmas at home sewing stuff that's still happening and the world doesn't see it anymore, are fighting for their independence. This is a war of independence. And on all spheres. So you, I, I, I describe it like this. Um and I know the, uh, the wonderful, I don't want to be disrespectful, Jonathan, because I don't know how to say it properly. The Brits. Yeah, that's um, fine. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. Brits. Um, the There was a wrestling, uh, um, a wrestler when I was growing up, you know, the fake wrestling on TV as a young boy. And they were, they were a duo called the British Bulldogs. And they were wrestlers. Okay. They were great. I loved them. Had their accent and they carried the Union Jack and it was awesome. You know, all the show, but, but the bulldog was bred to be a relentless dog. If you think about a bulldog, they have their mouth here and then their nose is slanted backwards so that they can lock onto their prey and not have to release, but they can keep breathing because the nose is not blocked. Folks, 
the world in many ways, those that are against Ukraine, spearheaded by the regime there in the Kremlin, you have picked a fight with a bulldog. Good luck. Good luck. They're not going to release. And they're going to fight. And they're going to stand for freedom and truth. And to, uh, to everyone says, I'm fighting for my daughter. I'm fighting for my son. And I'm fighting for yours. And they're fighting for difference as well. This is the other thing which, uh, by curious irony, my roommate in MKU, that was 30 years ago, um, turned out to be Ukrainian. And, you know, in the sort of broken conversations we had there over a bit, he tried to explain we're different. And I think that's the other point. Russian propaganda is we're the same, we're the same, we're the same. And they come and they kill you. Um Whereas Ukrainians are, we we're, we have some things in common, but we are different. And they're fighting to preserve that difference and not have it erased. And I think this is, this is the genocidal aspect of this, which uh, the media glosses over uh, legal people, politicians. You know, if they accept it, it comes with all sorts of responsibilities and costs. And they have to explain it to their electorates and so on. So this is something else that is that is not, unfortunately, covered enough. But Russia's actions on multiple fronts are genocidal. And is it true to say that every single Ukrainian now understands that, that to lose means essentially eradication? Even if you don't die, it means eradication of your identity, language, or all possibility of evolving that uh, you know cultural identity in the future i assume you want me to answer truthfully yes okay so your question was do the ukrainians understand that and the answer is yes 100 however i will tell you the truth in many of these frontline places um for example i do a lot of work in Kherson, and Kherson right now is destroyed every day civilians are being killed um There's up to 35% still in Kherson that support Russia. I mean, period. So you look at them, and it's and, and for us and for the military, and many of the many of those are ethnic Russians that have just lived in Kherson and they, they're staying. And and then when Kherson was occupied, you had a 10, 11 months there for the complete propaganda agenda and regime to just destroy some people's minds especially those that were ukrainian supporting but older they just it it flipped them and it is a challenge in some of these places especially when we're going in um in ukrainian military you have to be careful but i can tell you to answer your question that's why i couldn't say oh yeah 100 everybody here that's on yeah, this no, side. We want yeah the, no, want no, the no. truthful no. answer here it's the, complicated. The, the truth is 100% of Ukrainians absolutely stand against it. But you still have some mixed bag in a lot of these areas. And I would just say this. Just because you eat Solyanka does not mean you're Russian. You know, I eat fish and chips, but I'm not a Brit. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and the pernicious effect of propaganda or propaganda media, it's it's not just under occupation. I think people also fail to realize that the Ukrainian state didn't really 
uh, even after 2014, didn't make a concerted effort to uh, prevent Russia broadcasting um, essentially, uh, you know, its own media, its own messages, its own tropes. That that was that was done fairly, uh, you know, uninhibited all the way up until the full scale war. So you've had decades, in fact, of I would say this sort of low level cultural penetration, as it were. And it, it was even into the war months before they started removing 24 and, and 1 and all these RT and all these channels. It, it, it wasn't even day one. It took time. Um, and I can also tell you that on the front line areas, once you get within about 20 kilometers of the front line, um, the EW or electronic warfare is so strong. And you, Folks may go, well, what, what, what is that? Is that like drones and stuff? No, 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 no. That is the pounding of the communication signals. For example, once we get within 20 kilometers of the front, our GPSs go schizophrenic. And no matter where we want to go, we run multiple platforms of GPS and offline maps. Once we get into that area, they go schizophrenic and every GPS will push us into occupied territory. Period. Okay, and through little roads, and we of course know it, but it's that that warfare that's on a different level. I was just coming down through a Zoom the other day, and I have I have my American phone here, of course, but it's international, and I have other communication devices. But let's say I flew into Heathrow right now, and I landed, and I, as soon as I land and turn my phone on. My phone, I'm a T-Mobile subscriber in the United States. It will say, welcome to the UK. This is your plan. As soon as I cross any border, that is what happens. Okay, so I'm in Ukraine just a few days ago. I actually took video of this. I'm in a Zoom. I'm, I'm many, many kilometers from where there could be any Russian position. And I crossed this little place and my phone went, welcome to Ukraine. You've just entered Ukraine. So I had already been in Ukraine for weeks. Something hit my phone. And of course it was, I'm over next to Russia. So that's, that's what it's doing. Additionally, a, a lot of times when I try to, you know, bef because of OPSEC or op operational security, I, I rarely go live from the front or if I do it, it's in a bunker and very secure and through multiple VPNs and Starlinks and all this jazz. Typically I'm posting video days after because I'm showing soldiers um, with their permission for their security as well as mine. But many times I've been on that frontline area and my phone will hit, welcome to Russia. And man, I, I'm not in Russia. So that EW, I mean, they use that so they can push out anything. It doesn't matter if it's small or large, they're trying to control the airwaves. And, and that's that's a part of their plan. And And let's be honest, they're really good at it. They're unfortunately far too good at a great many things, and we tend to focus on the 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 stuff they get wrong and and all the video clips, and thereby sort of underestimate the sheer scale of malignancy they're able to project and still project, uh, and uh, that that remains undimmed. Um, the stuff you do is absolutely incredible. I really hope we get the chance to speak again about it. I have the yes. sense that we could we could probably kind of talk for for, for hours and hours and hours on that. Uh, it'd be great to meet in 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 real life as well. And uh, we will make that happen. 
there's a plan to come to Ukraine later in the year. Uh, we'll give more details uh, as that starts to coalesce, as it were. Um, we're going to be with uh, with Ukraine very strongly, obviously, on the 24th of February uh, in London. Big events happening there, awesome. uh, which we're going to be taking part of. And um, yeah, no, what you're doing is extraordinary. And I'm so grateful you can share that with the audience today. Thank you, Jonathan. I, I really appreciate it. And I think, you know, I just think the, the global community is is coming together, the grassroots effort strongly to support Ukraine, doing it through people like yourself and uh, myself and all these others, whether it be, you know, Dr. Gerdes we were referring to. And, and there's just so many, Johnny. Um, it, it's just, it's people doing what's right. And I, I'm glad to be a part of that team with you. I appreciate you for having me on today. And yes, we'll have to do it again because uh, we could, we could, well, you wax eloquent with that beautiful accent. I just talk like a redneck from America, but uh, we, we definitely have, have much to talk about. And I look forward to doing more together. And I have a little English pub that I will take you to when you come to Ukraine and I will buy you a dinner. I look forward to that. Definitely a pie and Ukrainian beer. And uh, that's that. That's agreed there. We're definitely doing that. Uh, Thank thanks so much. Please, everyone, do check out uh, Greg's work and his NGO charity. Uh, again, it's another great way if you want to send aid. It's a great way to do it and not have any fear about bureaucracy, inertia, uh, you know, loss of your donation. You know that that's going directly to the front line and it's the right kind of equipment to exactly the right place and the right people who are making a difference, as Greg said, at an absolutely pivotal time uh, in Ukraine's struggle for independence. Thank you. Thank you.